another episode of the Pakistan Experience. You already know Michael Kugelman now. He needs no introduction. How are you doing, Michael? Doing great, thanks. Hope you are as well. Yes, let's jump straight into it. India launched a missile into Pakistan as um, as somebody with some respect. I'm not sure if you would be able to say it. So I'll say it and I'll get your analysis on it. I think India is lying that it was an accident. I don't think these accidents happen. I think they were testing Pakistan's capacity to defend. Uh, what's your take? Uh, I think uh, Pakistan has had a mature response, but the world is taking it a lot more lightly than they should. This is a serious breach. Yeah, so uh, absolutely agree with you. A very serious breach. And you know the fact that um, it, it's unlikely that Pakistan uh, would have had the capacity to intercept or shoot this missile down, given how quickly it was traveling. I mean, it traveled almost 80 miles into the country in under four minutes. I mean, this is a supersonic missile, likely a, a, an Indian Brahmos cruise missile. This is serious stuff. Um, and yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that but we're very lucky uh, that, that both sides dodged a bullet. I credit Pakistan, uh, quite frankly, for the way it responded. The, the response it gave was very measured. Uh, you probably saw there have been a few reports, including Bloomberg, among others, have have claimed that uh, Pakistan initially tried to contemplate some type of uh, retaliation, but it didn't do that. Of course, that's based on unnamed sources, as is so typically the case these days. Um, so, yeah, it could have been real serious in terms of whether it really was a mistake. Uh, no, I think it's, it's, it's certainly I can understand the speculation that it was not uh, that it was not a mistake, given that. You know, quite frankly, India's safety record on its missile supplies is fairly strong. Um, so it is quite striking that, you know, after many years of this really strong record, all of a sudden you have this incredibly egregious mistake, uh, so to speak, where, you know, a missile is launched into Pakistan during, quote unquote, routine maintenance, according to the Indian government uh, readout. Um, and yeah, the fact that this was a uh, an unarmed missile, um, as well as the fact that the Indians did not initially notify the, uh, Pakistan about what had happened, that, that all adds up to, um, I think, the, the possibility that this could have been something other than a mistake. Of course, I'm in no position to say uh, what, what the case was or not. I, 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 I think that um, one can certainly claim that it would have been, that it would have been a mistake because mistakes happen. And India has given a very, not a very detailed, but somewhat of a, a detailed assessment as to what exactly went wrong. It hasn't said much more beyond that, um, but who knows? And I, you know what? I imagine that you and I and, and most others in the world will probably never know exactly what happened and the full story. But my bottom line here is that I certainly acknowledge the those that think that this was not a mistake for the reasons that I mentioned. I don't think India has given a detailed reason. They just said it's a mistake. Plus, if you notice the... Oh, you're very well prepared here. It changed directions midway. So unless that's programmed, I don't think once it's launched, it's can't, it can't do that. So it does look very, very sketchy the way it all happened. And the fact that it says, oh, there wasn't a nuclear warhead on it, where there could have been. So it really does seem like they were testing our capacity. And especially with uh, Putin's uh, excursions into Ukraine, I do feel India might feel a little emboldened to try something like this. And uh, I know I might uh, get into trouble for saying this, but ISPR is trying to save itself by saying we had intercepted it, we were tracking it, but more than likely 
they were made aware of it after it already entered into Pakistan and they lacked the capacity to actually shoot it down. Yeah, and on that I agree with you. And I have spoken to some, some Pakistani defense experts who know a lot more about these types of technicalities than I do. And they have acknowledged that indeed, uh, Pakistan really wouldn't have the ability to shoot something like this down, which makes it all the more concerning and gets to the broader issue of how lucky we are that things were not that things were not worse. You know, if the, if this was February 2019 or even any time in 2020 when tensions were pretty high in the relationship, I don't necessarily think that Pakistan's response would have been quite as uh, as measured. So, and and of course we're lucky that there were no deaths, right? That there was that there were no deaths on the ground. That there were no commercial airliners that were hit by this missile. Um, a lot of a lot of we're, we're very fortunate in this regard. Um, but yeah, and of course it hasn't gotten much attention globally, given that the world's attention is focused on Ukraine, rightly so. Um, but yeah, quite a quite a story. I think Jen Saki acknowledged it. Oh, is that right? I think Jen Saki said that. Uh, we have noticed that it happened a little more than that. I mean, they did not even rebuke India. Um, I think she just, uh, even on the Ukraine-Russia crisis, there wasn't a strong rebuke. I believe Jen Saki just said history will look at it. History will look at it unfavorably. Um, it is It is most definitely troubling. And uh, I think generally the war drums are beaten by both the Pakistan and Indian media and constantly the blame is put on uh, the other side. And I've been quite critical of the Pakistani military and I've been quite vocal, much to my own uh, peril as well at times. But if we look at the recent in incidents, whether it's Abhinandan, whether it's this missile, whether it's Kashmir, I think Pakistan has had opportunities to retaliate and it has chosen not to. So even people in India who are listening to this, uh, I think we've shown a maturity and we've shown a stance that we're against war, whereas I think India is getting emboldened and this might become dangerous. Well, yeah, I mean, this is true. And I think that uh, Pakistan has been, especially when you look at the Balakot crisis, uh, the way in which that ended with the release of uh, Abhinandan and, and all of that, I think that one can give some credit to, uh, to Pakistan in that regard. Um, but I mean, at the end of the day, uh, I don't want to, uh, risk uh, uh, provoking an angry response, but you know, India is the larger, more powerful um, state. Its conventional military forces, generally speaking, are superior to those of Pakistan. So obviously Pakistan has used asymmetric means to push back against India over the years. Uh, nuclear weapons, of course, is, is, is a big factor. But my point is that Pakistan certainly would need to be cautious um, in terms of how far it may want to go. But it did retaliate. I mean, after the, the Balakot, um, uh, incident after those Indian airstrikes, uh, it didn't get much press coverage globally, but Pakistan did retaliate um, by sending a, um, a very, as I recall, a single airstrike into a non-populated area um, in Indian-ministered um, Kashmir, as I recall. Didn't hurt anyone, didn't get much attention, but I think that was meant to send a, to send a message. Do you remember what I'm talking about? No, I don't. Ah. <laughs> See, there you go. But anyway, my, my point is that Pakistan does need to be cautious in these contexts. Um, and I think also Pakistan is, uh, percep global perception issues are important for Pakistan. I think that Islamabad is very concerned about trying to convey this idea that it's a responsible uh, that it's a responsible actor. And I think it likes to, it wants to try to contrast itself from the Indian uh, government, which it routinely describes as as fascist and, and, and so on. Um, and it understands that 
Pakistan's global image is still much worse than India's is. Um, and uh, quite frankly, because of a number of very concerning uh, things that have happened over the last few decades, particularly in terms of Pakistan's relationship with certain terrorist groups and so on. So I think that's another factor to keep in mind that Pakistan is always wanting to keep a global audience in mind and wanting to project this idea that it's the more responsible, restrained country um, compared to India. I mean, isn't that every single country in the world? Aren't, aren't we all trying to do that same thing? Even if we talk about the US, the jihadi groups that you're talking about that Pakistan has been in bed with, I will openly acknowledge that uh, the funding for that in, um, started from the US. Right. No, of course. I mean, you could, yeah, you can make that argument about, about many countries. But again, Pakistan has this image problem <clears throat> that it has sought to to overcome in recent years. And I think that the, the powers that be uh, feel a particularly strong incentive to try to push back against that and show that uh, you know, Pakistan is, is, is responsible, that it's peace loving and so on. And it's, there's, a, there's still a very skeptical audience, uh, particularly in the West, um, well beyond India. Uh, but yeah, you, I see your point. You can make that argument about, uh, about most countries. Um, the skepticism may be justified, but again, uh, I think which country has an image problem, that's also dependent on global and foreign policy. So if we do talk about Russia and Ukraine, uh, absolutely what uh, Putin is doing is wrong and nobody over here is in favor of war. But when uh, the US bombed Iraq, there were no sanctions. When the US uh, helped fund different wars all over the world, there were no sanctions. So. Uh, global policy and global perceptions are more about relationships and who has the power as opposed to any moral principles, or at least that's what it seems like. Yeah, absolutely. And I've had this discussion many times over the last uh, few months that, um, uh, you know, the United States has uh, initiated uh, a number of wars of choice. And it's interesting that many uh, Biden administration officials have referred to Putin's war as a war of choice. I don't think that's a very good phrase to use because um, that sort of it brings to mind all of these American wars of choice, especially the war in Iraq, uh, the war in Afghanistan to an extent. I would argue that the Russian invasion of Ukraine is much more serious and egregious than, than either of those American wars. But still, there are better ways of describing what Putin has done than calling it a war of choice, which almost seems to sort of cast it in a less uh, serious, uh, concerning uh, tone. But yeah, obviously, the, the U.S. history uh, shows many, many cases of aggressions, of invasions. Um, and uh, as you say, I mean, the, the way the world is structured and the way power dynamics work, um, there's always going to be a a, a certain type of re response in this context. And, but, I, I, but I'll say this, I think that it would be wrong to argue that it's only the West um, that is sort of behind the US and what it's doing and how it's reacted to the Russian invasion. You look at the UN General Assembly vote, you had so many countries in the developing world that voted in favor of that resolution condemning the invasion. And I know that um, you had several dozen countries that abstained, including four in South Asia, which is fine, but, this is not just a you know a war of the West or a war that's sort of animated and 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 um, uh, emboldened the West, so to speak. I mean, there has been global condemnation for what's happened, as there should be. I think the UN General Assembly vote is just as free as Pakistani elections. People vote based <laughs> on their relationships, what is due from who, and even to cause uh, create some pressure on India. What US said was, "You buy a lot of weapons from us." 
So it's not, I, I would argue that most countries are probably not taking a moral stance. They're taking a foreign policy relations stance when they're voting. Sure. Well, of course, and that's how the world works. I mean, uh, international relations are driven by interest, not by, not by morality. Uh, and that certainly stands for the US. Uh, and I think it stands for most countries too, right? Um, I think you'd have to go back to maybe uh, the Jimmy Carter administration when you last had a US president that actually pursued foreign policy based on moral considerations as opposed to interests. And even there are even limits to what he did. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Obviously, you know, you, the, even just looking at the four South Asian countries that abstained from, from the UN General Assembly vote, well, they had their reasons because they either have close uh, friendships with Russia or they want to have a closer friendship with Russia or they've depended on Russia for financial support, or they had some trade relationships with Russia. Absolutely, that's that's the way it goes. But note that even those four countries did not, uh, they did not oppose the resolution. They abstained, and there's a difference there. Do you notice shades of McCarthyism in the US right now? Because there's also an American scholar who's repeatedly argued for the fact that Ukraine and NATO are to blame for the war and it's it's NATO that's creating the conditions for this war. And then there was a Twitter trend to rebuke that scholar or to ban that scholar. And Russian literature is being banned from certain universities. I just saw a tweet that Slack has deleted business accounts of average Russians where Russian businesses have lost a lot of data. A, I don't think this is effective because this will only fuel Putin's propaganda, the binary that he's creating with the West and Russia, it will only fuel that. B, do you now see how believable McCarthyism was because you're seeing it happen in 2022 despite movies like Trumbo? Well, no, you make some very good points there. I do not think that we're seeing a return of McCarthyism, but absolutely, I would agree with you that I think that uh, the West and particularly the U.S. are going much too far in terms of cracking down on on Russians, on private citizen Russians. I mean, the fact that you have these these musical maestros performing in uh, in major uh, U.S. orchestras, Russians that have been forbidden from from participating in that just because they're Russians. I think that's absolutely wrong. Um, and this gets to and and I should say that in in the U.S. there's so many Russians that are very prominent in popular culture and sports. You know, hockey. I don't know if you follow hockey, but uh, you know, there's some 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 of the biggest stars in the National Hockey League here are Russians. Um, now, one of them, the biggest one, who happens to be a star for the local team in Washington, the Washington Capitals, he happens to be an avowed supporter of Putin. His name is Alex Ovechkin. That's sort of different. But then you have so many other athletes and musicians who happen to be Russian, who are being told that you know they they can't. They can't do what they used to. They can't do their jobs anymore because they're Russians. That's a mistake. And that gets to a broader point that I think is important to acknowledge here when looking at this whole uh, Russia-Ukraine crisis from a U.S. domestic political lens. I would argue that on many levels, the Cold War never really ended. Um, yes, when, when, when the Cold War formally ended, you had a period during the 1990s when you had in the Yeltsin era and the Clinton era, when you had a, a growing relationship between the US and Russia, there was pathways for cooperation. But then once Putin came to power, uh, you know, we get into the early 2000s, the tensions resurfaced. And Putin, of course, had been very concerned about NATO expansion from the start. Uh, the US was very much behind NATO expansion, of course. And so tensions soon returned to this relationship um, to the point that it's not just political diplomatic relations, but 
popular perceptions of Russia in the United States uh, have been very negative, uh, quite negative. It sort of reminds me of Iran, of perceptions of Iran. And so then, you know, we got to more recent, more recent period uh, when the Russians uh, annexed um, Crimea. Uh, Crimea several years ago. That ratcheted things up even more. And then the real kicker was the 2016 election, uh, when, of course, the Democratic Party here accused Russians of meddling and preventing Hillary Clinton from getting elected, leading to the election of Donald Trump. And we now have a Democratic administration in power now. So my point is that there's sort of cultural and political factors uh, here in the United States as well that I think have added fuel to the fire, so to speak, that have sort of contributed to this um, especially hard line being taken, not only toward Putin and Moscow, but toward Russians on the whole, which is not right and which is not fair. So I think that's important context to keep in mind when we hear all these very unfortunate stories about uh, you know Russian athletes and musicians getting booed or harassed, or Russian Russian nationals in the U.S. basically being told that they can't do their jobs anymore. You know, we had a, a famous Russian restaurant in D.C. that basically had to to shut down because there was all these anger and protests and threats. So it's just a shame, but it gets to this broader issue of the Cold War never really having ended here. If the U.S. wants to boycott Russian vodka uh, and they want to send it to Pakistan, I'd be more, more than happy to, to take it. If you want to dump Russian vodka into Pakistan, I'll take it. Fine, U.S. I, I accept. I'll, I'll be sure to tell the, uh, the relevant authorities here about that. So. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think, uh, I mean, nobody can argue that I'm a Republican or I can support the Republican Party, but the Democratic Party has also been quite stupid in their messaging. This idea that Putin is this bad guy or Putin is like Hitler, um, I don't think it does them any favors as well because the large portion of America does not see this uh, in the nuanced way that they should. They simply see Putin as a bad guy. And I love Colbert, but you know, this constant messaging about the PP tape, Trump being uh, Putin's, I won't use the word, but you know what I mean. Uh, it, it, does, it does normal America no favors because they start seeing this world in that simplistic Marvel binary of us being Captain America and us being the good, good uh, guys. This isn't D-Day, this isn't Normandy they don't really understand why Putin is doing and what he's doing it for. And they simply come to the conclusions, Russian is equal to bad and it's a red scare all over again. Right, yeah, I guess it gets back to the, to the, the point that you had made uh, earlier. Um, I, I frankly think there's no other way to refer to Putin than as a bad guy, quite frankly. I mean, given what he's done and uh, you know, not even allowing uh, humanitarian convoys to get into major cities in, uh, in the Ukraine, it's, it's horrific. Um, so I'm not gonna I'm I'm not gonna make any excuses. I'm, I'm uh, not saying I'm not saying Putin is a good guy. I'm saying what Trump said when he was asked if Putin is the bad guy. He was like, "Do you think we're the good uh, guys? Do you think we haven't done anything?" <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty good impression uh, right there. <laughs> um, <China. laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, of course, President Trump. It's just a whole other. It's just a whole other story for sure. But you know, it's interesting that if you look back, um, there have been some notable cases of, of very senior U.S. figures um, on the Republican side expressing sort of these personal affinities for Putin. I think the most famous case, right, was George W. Bush who said, I think after meeting Putin at one point, you know, when I looked into his eyes, I could see his soul, something like that. I don't think George W. Bush is known for being a romantic. 
Uh, that's a quite an impressive thing to say. The painter <laughs> in him had awakened at that point. Yes, exactly. Maybe he got inspiration. Though I'm not aware of any Putin paintings that Bush has done uh, in recent years. <laughs> <laughs> Even uh, Rudy Giuliani has been quite, uh, uh, you know, lyrical about Putin's praises. Tucker Carlson, who has the largest microphone in the Republican Party, even though he's not part of the Republican Party, but that's the espouses Republican values, or at least pretends to. He's been very pro-Putin. Trump was very pro-Putin. So there is that romanticism with that strong leader that the Republican Party has had with Putin. But I, and I think all the it is sort of politically driven. I think that perhaps some of these very prominent uh, right-wing uh, Republican figures in the United States would want to distinguish their views from those of the Democratic Party and particularly, you know, the administration at a moment when the administration is going full bore uh, and trying to uh, uh, and trying to go after Putin and, and certainly crack down on, on Russians on the whole. So I think that could be part of it as well. But indeed, it is striking that um, particularly some of the, the conservative media personalities here in the U.S. have been really saying things that sound like Putin talking points, quite frankly, including a few um, a few presenters on Fox News. Again, I think we, we should keep the domestic political context in mind. Uh, but yeah, Putin certainly has his 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 supporters and his admirers. That's that's the way it goes. And of course, we could talk about India, uh, where there's so much nostalgia for the relationship with Russia, going back to the early days of the Cold War. Where indeed, I, I think that you do have some individuals that may not uh, wholly endorse the invasion, but certainly would be in a position to. Um, to want to cut some slack for uh, for Putin, and India is not the only place. <clears throat> I think there is a romanticism with Soviet the Soviet Union, but there is also an idea to have two big dogs in the yard, so the U.S. is kept in check. I think that's also a tactful policy why some people want to see a resurgence of the Soviet Union. I'm not saying I do. I'm saying some people on the left and the traditional classic Marxist model. Uh, the thing that you say that looking at it from a domestic lens, I think I would argue that's the only lens US politicians look at it from, uh, not alleging any foul play, but any times the president's uh, approval ratings are critically low, there seems to be a war, there seems to be an airstrike. And even at this point when war has kicked off, Biden's ratings were shockingly low when it happened. It's, it's uh, one should be skeptical of how coincidental these things are. Well, that's, that's an interesting perspective there. Um, I see your point, and indeed you're right, that domestic politics is a huge influence on US foreign policy. But you know, at the end of the day, it was the Russians that were that were mobilizing uh, nearly 200,000 troops. And it was the Russians that uh, invaded the Ukraine on false pretexts and, and historical uh, grievances that don't exist and so on. So, and the US was reacting to that. And of course, you know, getting beyond the issue of the Cold War never having ended, you know, this we're talking about an invasion uh, right on the um, in the periphery of the NATO uh, presence, right? So it's understandable, I think, that the U.S. and and other NATO countries reacted in the way that they did, even though I think they went overboard on some levels, as I had mentioned earlier. I think we'd get into a chicken and egg argument if we talk True. about pro provocation, pro propaganda of the Russians are coming and the Russians are coming and becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy when you say the Russians will attack on Tuesday. The Russians will attack. <laughs> uh, let's not get into that. But when Putin responds by saying, what if we put uh, nuclear missiles in Mexico? How do you think the US will react? He does have a point when he says that. So if Ukraine uh, becomes a part of NATO and missiles are put by the US, we're already 
uh, in the periphery of Russia, the US has put missiles. The US will not respond kindly if Russia puts missiles in Mexico. We all know what happened in the Cuban Missile Crisis and gladly people showed restraint there. But Putin has a point when he says that. Uh, absolutely, I think it is important to acknowledge the, the lens through which the other side, so to speak, uh, would, would look at uh, what's happened uh, over the last few decades, uh, for sure. But, you know, that said, uh, you know, NATO had been very open to, to dialogue uh, with, with the Russians on this, uh, on this whole expansion thing for many years. And even in the lead up to the actual invasion, uh, you know, the U.S. was holding out the, the option of, of negotiation and diplomacy to try to figure out how to, how to de-escalate. So, but yes, you're, you're right. I, absolutely. I think that one, it's important to acknowledge why the Russians were so concerned about what had been happening on its periphery for, for, so, many, for so many years, absolutely. But that certainly does not justify a cold-blooded invasion, in my, in my humble opinion. No, absolutely not. Nothing justifies a cold-blooded invasion. But in terms of the messaging, that's what I mean when you say Putin good guy, Putin bad guy, we the good guys. It robs the people of understanding all these nuances that, oh, there was a way for negotiation. And I would argue that Russia has used US's playbook. It may be completely false propaganda, but the idea that the neo-Nazis, American shills that have been installed in Ukraine and the Ukrainian people actually want democracy. So the, I, I'm not surprised this idea that Russians are dumb. That's why they believe Putin's propaganda. But then people in the US signed up for the war on Iraq on similar pretenses. So this idea that we're bringing democracy to Ukraine, that's what Putin would argue. I get it sounds foolish, but it's right from US's playbook. No, this is true. This idea of manufacturing, uh, the idea of serve of being a liberator. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I certainly acknowledge your, uh, I acknowledge your point uh, for sure. Um, but again, th there are ways, th there are opportunities. Putin was given opportunities to be able to work things out with the US uh, and the NATO alliance uh, you know the, even as you know up to the up to the the last few days before the invasion president biden had said that he was ready to sit down and have a summit with putin if only he were to hold back and not invade but putin wasn't he wasn't interested in that clearly he reached a point where he had no interest in talking and he had made up his mind that he was going to launch this invasion that you know, is, has not gone very well from a tactical uh, point of view to this point. But I certainly, I certainly acknowledge your point. I'm not trying to excuse these US excesses uh, and, 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 and aggressions of the past, especially the, the war in Iraq. I think that stands out. I would distinguish that from the, the war in Afghanistan, very different context, very different motivations. But yeah, the war on, in, in Iraq was based on false um, uh, intelligence uh, about the idea of Iraq having nuclear weapons. Um, and it was, it's very hard to justify that war. Um, so I certainly acknowledge that. And that the US, one could argue is, is, is hypocritical for sure. Um, and I, I definitely will not, I definitely would not reject that, uh, that argument by, by any means, that's very clear. So when the US asks for acquiescence from South Asian country, this is, and I don't think Imran Khan should say that because he's the prime minister and he should be more diplomatic, but a person like me can say it who has no stakes and don't represent anything in Pakistan. That's the problem, right? When you're supporting Israel, when even something as small as the Premier League, flying a Palestinian flag, uh, players would rebuke for that. 
that you shouldn't involve politics in the Premier League. And now the Premier League logo is about uh, is, is the Ukrainian flag. Uh, not to say people shouldn't support people in Ukraine. They absolutely do. They're fighting for this country and more power to them, uh, especially that clip about uh, telling the warship to F off. I particularly enjoyed that. But the problem is when the U.S., Finds Israel, helps them with their defense system, and the world turns a blind eye to Palestine. And then suddenly, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, and now all these moral policies, to the extent where some videos from Palestine were shared by people who thought it was Ukraine, and once they find out it was Palestine, they deleted it. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so your point is is what that it's it's not right for the U.S. to be trying to drag. Uh, countries into this whole war story when it's not their war and, and so forth. That's that's basically your point, right? Which I acknowledge. I think the U.S. is trying to take a moral stance and it's asking for acquiescence based on that. And right. like you acknowledge that one can argue that the U.S. is being hypocritical. For that fact, uh, countries being neutral, I think it should be their prerogative and they shouldn't be punished for that. Mm-hmm. Right. No, absolutely. Um, and I and I certainly agree with that. Um, I and it's it's natural that um, there would be a tendency on the part of the U.S. to assume that many countries, including those that are not nece- are not at all impacted by the war, would sort of jump onto the uh, onto the U.S. bandwagon, uh, so to speak, and support this uh, just because it's a terrible thing. Because all invasions are terrible, especially this one. Um, it's 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 not, and you know that comes with uh, the U.S. being a superpower. Just sort of taking for granted the idea that it would get a lot of support, um, and indeed, it's it's it certainly is is wrong headed. Wrong headed. Um, also, keep in mind that uh, one of President Biden's initial and biggest foreign policy goals uh, during this early part of his presidency has been to, um, in his words, restore alliances and restore U.S. leadership, which he thinks was squandered by the Trump administration. So I think that he, in particular, would want to make a big show of, of trying to gather more uh, international uh, support, certainly within NATO, but also outside of NATO, to support this, to support this uh, this U.S. effort, in an indication that U.S. leadership has has returned, uh, so to speak, um, and I think that that the U.S. has been fairly successful with reuniting the NATO alliance. Though, of course, there are still some disagreements about what to do about the sanctioning the Russian e- energy sector because of how much dependence many EU states have on on Russian energy. Um, but I think that. S- Beyond that, as I said before, there were there are quite a few non-Western states that supported the UN General Assembly resolution. Um, but I think that for those that didn't, and you know, the 30 or whatever that, that abstained, I think that at this point the administration has acknowledged that there's not much it can do about that. As I understand it, it did lobby a lot to try to get a number of those countries, including India, as well as Pakistan and some of the others, to sign on to the to the resolution. They didn't succeed. I think that they've. I think that they've. That the U.S. has um, has acknowledged that. But you're right that unfortunately, even when you have this this horrific invasion that, from a moral perspective, is just terrible, as we had agreed before, interest, not morality, governs international relations and the decisions that are made within that context. So it would be unrealistic, if not naive, to expect the U.S. to generate the full scale global consensus. 
about the need to take the US's position from a strictly moral perspective that this invasion was a horrible thing. If the world were different, if it were more driven by moral considerations, the situation would be different. So yeah, I, I, fully, um, I fully acknowledge your point there. But that said, final point on this, I do think that one could argue that for some countries, uh, particularly India, there are so many reasons to believe that important foreign policy, if not national interests, could be uh, hurt in a big way if this war continues. Just because you know India doesn't want Russia to get closer to China, which is going to happen. It doesn't want the US to be distracted from its Indo-Pacific policy of countering China. That's going to happen. So I think that there's also reasons to look at this from the context of, well, plenty of countries outside of the West should still support the US position, not out of the moral considerations, because of interest-based considerations. That applies to India. Of course, it doesn't apply to many of the other countries that abstain. But I think it is important to sort of put that, that nuanced perspective out there, too. Uh, one can argue that during Trump's America first policy, America did cede a lot of ground in foreign relations, and it, it emboldened certain countries. And uh, this form moral standing that the US has traditionally had, even if it would just mean a rebuke by the press secretary at the White House or a letter written, uh, that even stopped uh, the false pretenses of democracy or human rights. That even stopped largely during Trump's era, where it was more about power and acknowledging what power was. But Biden, when you claim that Biden uh, wanted to restore America's position. Part of it was, you know, telling the world again that we were a superpower, but he was never going to sit down at the table at the, at, with Putin, even if he expresses an earnest desire to, because during the debates, he constantly attacked Trump for being, uh, for sitting in the lap of Putin and then, uh, you know, suggesting that there might be a PP tape. And if we look at Biden's early career as well, he was quite instrumental in putting NATO together. So he was always going to restore NATO. And once in an effort to restore NATO, how much of that becomes a direct threat to Putin? And it's sort of like provoking the bear. If you're going to put the stick into the bear, again, not defending Putin, he's a war criminal, much like Israel uh, does war crimes in Palestine. For me, I take a moral stance. I, I have no interests uh, or I don't represent anybody. So I can take a moral stance on war. But this idea that Biden earnestly wanted to talk to Putin, I'm a little skeptical of. He was always going to embolden NATO because, again, a lot of politics is also about personal relations. And he's had personal relations right from the start of his career with the NATO alliance. Yeah, so I could acknowledge your point, but I think that uh, my sense is that Biden was genuinely committed to sitting down with Putin um, and having that summit um, if, if there had not been an invasion, just because you know, Biden didn't want Putin to invade. He didn't want there to be a war. Um, and you know, I think that, yes, you're right, there is his, his past record, and certainly he was a fervent uh, supporter of NATO expansion, as most U.S. presidents, all U.S. presidents have been. Um, uh, but I, I wouldn't place too much importance in what he said on the campaign trail. Uh, much of that can be, you know, the, a lot of what's said in the campaign trail ends up uh, coming to naught and is contradicted by subsequent behavior uh, when these folks become president. So no, I, I, I really think that, um, that yes, I mean, yeah, I mean, Biden has criticized Trump for sitting down and talking to dictators. And of course, there's also Biden's democracy promotion uh, idea, which I think is very dang not dangerous, but I think it's very troubling because 
you know, when you put yourself out there and say that you're going to try to restore democracy and support democracies, you only you only underscore the inherent hypocrisy of that idea because the U.S. is never going to go out and and push uh, India or Israel or other key uh, key I'll partners. To, yeah, well, that's yeah, that that too. And then um, so anyway, that's a side issue. But that said. We have seen a willingness on the part of Biden to take a more, a less polemical position towards some of America's biggest rivals. And I think China is, is an example. I mean, Biden has said from the start that he would welcome cooperation with China where it's possible, particularly in areas like climate change. Um, Iran, you know, but the Biden administration wants to get back into that nuclear accord, which is looking more, less and less uh, likely. Um, and so that, you know, that taking that type of conciliatory position, I think, suggests a willingness to engage with the leaders of, of those countries. And, you know, Putin, pardon me, Biden and Putin, they have they have met, um, they have engaged. Um, and so and Biden was actually criticized from by many within his own parties for having that meeting with Putin too soon in his administration. Um, so I think that he would have been ready. I, I think that we would have had that summit between him and Putin. I'm not going to say that would have stopped an eventual Putin invasion, but I, I really think that he was, I think he was ready for that. I mean, Biden, like Trump, there's not much in common between the two, but I think Biden does, like Trump, value the importance of personal diplomacy. And we live in an era where summitry is such a big deal. And, uh, you know, it's important for presidents uh, and, and heads of government to be seen engaging on personal levels. So I think Biden would have had that meeting with Putin. I don't think that it was just a bluff, but we'll never know. I mean, we saw no sanctions. We didn't even see a rebuke. We saw some rebuke when Jamal Khashoggi was murdered, but uh, arms were still thrown to Saudi Arabia. And that's uh, quite a sore point in all foreign policies for everybody since Saudi oil and Saudi money makes the world go around, whether it be Pakistan, whether it be the US. It's, um, it might be quite costly to criticize them. Um, you said the Cold War never ended, but if we do talk about maybe the threat levels in the US using that chart, it has definitely moved from yellow to orange, if not red. Do you see this escalation as uh, a potential alliance between China and Russia that will threaten world relations and we'll see a lot more proxy wars? Or I'm sure Putin anticipated to be much like Crimea. It might have escalated a bit more than that. but. Do you see it going more towards that way where Russia just occupies some more areas like Donetsk? Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. And there's another one where there's a lot of pro-Putin uh, support and the world sort of forgets about it with some sanctions. Or do you see it an escalation towards uh, much more like the Cold War scenario uh, that we saw previously? Right. Well, I think uh, the only person that knows what direction this war is going to take is Putin himself. And Putin is notoriously unscrutable and very few people know what's going on in his head other than him. Um, I, I do worry in the, in the near term that the tactical failures of the, of the Russian invasion, in other words, their inability to take uh, cities quickly could lead to a sense of desperation that results in even more uh, egregious, uh, indiscriminate type attacks. I really worry about that. I hope it doesn't come to that, but that certainly is a possibility. Um, but I think that so long as the war does not expand beyond Ukraine, uh, I think that eventually there will be an opportunity for de-escalation. Now, of course, 
if 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 the Russians are able to succeed in, in taking Ukraine, so to speak, uh, at one point, and there's certainly no guarantee that's going to happen. In fact, I think that would be very difficult. But if that does happen, then clearly, you know, that would, I think, sort of be an inherently and a long-term escalatory uh, threat um, as perceived by the NATO alliance, right? To have a you know, to have a a, a a new government that's uh, a stooge of the Russians, um, or an actual Russian takeover of Ukraine, a key country that borders NATO states, um, that would be something that would be difficult to to move away from. Now, the NATO alliance has no intention of getting involved in a war taking place inside Ukraine, other than you know sending military assistance and all of that. No desire to put boots on the ground. I really don't throw all this talk about the possibility of a, of a NATO no-fly zone. I don't think that will fly, uh, so to speak, because again, that risks drawing the NATO alliance into the war. So I think that um, you know, in terms of the of of the 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 war itself, my sense and my hope is that it will be um, that it will be limited, that it won't uh, escalate um, anymore. But in terms of the geopolitical implications, yeah, that's that's also uh, hard to say. Certainly, I think it's quite likely that you will see a deeper Russia-China relationship, which to this point has been largely uh, largely revolves around economic cooperation. But if it's true that according to some of these recent reports in the US media that uh, Russia has sought Chinese arms, well, that would signify a whole new, a whole new ball game, so to speak. And for the US to confront the reality of its two biggest or two most powerful um, enemies banding together, very, that would be very concerning um, for the US. And that would sort of raise questions about what you know, the next step would be. I think that it sort of, poses some interesting implications for the US Indo-Pacific policy. Uh, would China pressure Russia to develop more of a presence in Southeast Asia uh, to try to counter uh, you know, the Indo-Pacific program to strengthen China's own position there? This is all speculation right now. But I do think on a very simple level, if you have a deeper Russia-China relationship, that would certainly pose a new type of challenge for the United States that would raise a lot of questions about the future of, of the uh, of the global um, world order. Now, there have been some 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 discussions about whether the U.S. would seek to enlist China in efforts to get Russia to de-escalate. It's unclear if China is interested in doing that. That could help ease some of the tensions for sure. But um, yeah, bottom line is that the, the I think the biggest geopolitical takeaway from this war is that you're going to have most likely a closer relationship between Russia and China, which has clear implications for the United States and many countries in the West. I mean, if Ukraine falls, Moldova is inevitable. It's such a tiny country. I think Putin has his eyes on that. Uh, I'm not sure if he'll go into Belarus, but uh, I don't think there's any way he's going into Poland. And he's already acknowledged if NATO says that um, there'll be a no-fly zone, that'll be a declaration of war. Uh, if the US position is that a pro-Russian government in Ukraine will be seen as a threat to NATO, how do they fail to acknowledge that a pro U.S. government in Ukraine is a threat to Russia. No, absolutely, you're right. Uh, I think that the, it is important to acknowledge that um, for sure. But again, thinking about the lens through which the U.S. Uh, the, through U.S. through what through which Washington views Russia, its ideas, sort of cloaked in this this Cold War uh, rhetoric and hostility. 
I think it would be very important, very, it would be very unlikely that the US would, would make that type of acknowledgement. You know, what, one final point on that, on the, the scenario of a Ukraine that's taken over by Russia or a Ukraine with a pro-Russia government, you know, I think that the, the risk there is that you would have an insurgency, uh, a Ukrainian insurgency. Um, that tries by the US. To, uh, yeah, perhaps. Uh, that there's a good chance that that insurgency would have to be based across the border in Poland, for example, um, or in some, and that obviously would have implications for the NATO alliance, and it would have implications for the Russians too. So I don't want to sort of give a categorical statement and say, oh well, you know, if if the war only stays in Ukraine, we're not there's nothing more will come of it in terms of how NATO may respond. But yeah, I think that the story wouldn't end. The Ukrainians are not going to. Uh, to just surrender and lie down easily. That's very clear. So some pretty notable implications, even if you have a relatively limited outcome. I mean, it really does seem to me Ukrainians are being used as a pawn in a much wider global war. Uh, if there is a Ukrainian government in exile, most probably it will be in Poland. It will be funded by the US. So the argument that you're making is that if there is a pro-Russian government in Ukraine, then the US will fund an insurgency, which they probably would. Yeah, I mean, I can't speak to whether they'd fund it, but I think that it would be very difficult to avoid the reality of having a of a, a Ukrainian uh, anti-state insurgency based in a neighboring NATO country. That's 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 something, and there there are various implications that flow from that for sure. Oh, it's Afghanistan all over again, and much. Uh, I think even with Kashmir. It's India and Pakistan having a war in Kashmir without ever actually acknowledging what people in Kashmir want. So more power to the people in Ukraine, but I don't think anybody is that interested in what Ukrainians want. Everybody's interested in their personal interests, which most of foreign policy tends to be as far as countries are concerned. Oh, absolutely, for sure. Um, yeah, this is true. Um, and you, know, you mentioned Afghanistan. I've been, I think many of us here in the US have been struck by how there's been these huge outpourings of support for Ukrainians and the West has, has agreed to open its borders to Ukrainian refugees. And we know that the story was so different with Afghans, right? After the Taliban takeover, after the US withdrawal, uh, so much hesitancy in the part of the EU states uh, and, the, and, and the US as well to do more to make it easier for Afghan refugees to, to come out. And is it a double standard? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Um, you know, you, you didn't have the, the Eiffel Tower lighting up in the colors of the Afghan flag, the pre-Taliban flag after the, the Taliban takeover, but you're seeing the world, and I think this is a good thing, the world has responded in many ways, in, in, in ways that express solidarity with the Ukrainians. And yet um, we just had, we, we didn't see that when it came to the Afghans. Obviously two different cases for sure, two different conflicts. But I think that here is where you could really see some of these double standards and hypocritical uh, hypocrisy evidenced by the West when it comes to Ukrainians and when it comes to Afghans. And it really is unfortunate, but that's the reality. It's tragic and dangerous, but I do think because of COVID and the mental health toll that has taken on people, people are retracting and receding into their primary identities, whether they see themselves as a country or a religion or skin color. And it may be simplistic to say this, but a lot of it is simply about uh, European supremacy or white supremacy, the idea that they look, look at us. When UK was puncturing boats in the river, leaving refugees to drown, it wasn't an issue. When the Biden administration that wanted to be more empathetic 
were putting refugees on their borders in cages when Kamala Harris was like, don't come here. It wasn't a problem. Uh, and we saw what happened Syrian refugees as well, all over Europe. But now there is this entire appeal to humanity about Ukrainian crisis. And we even saw videos where African immigrants in Ukraine were denied entry into the trains and white people were allowed. So it may be simplistic to say this, but a lot of the reaction is simply as simple as saying, oh, they look like us. Yeah, and it, right. And this has this has prompted some very, I think, difficult discussions about the role of, of race, uh, for example, in this in this whole story. And you know, this this idea of so many um, Western journalists expressing, you know, disbelief that uh, you know you could have bloodshed and conflict in Europe in a civilized um, country. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just a terrible, a terrible, a terrible thing to say. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's sort of, there's clearly, yeah, I, I basically, I, I agree with you, it's wrong. Um, and I think in some cases, these are war correspondents that are reacting in the moment, they're very emotional, but still, that's no excuse. Um, it's just not the way to project these terrible things that are happening, because obviously suffering is a universal reality. It's nothing to do with, with race. Well, it does in many cases, but it's, it's wrong to have this war projected in that way um, as something that shouldn't happen in, quote, civilized areas, civilized countries. It's unfortunate. And it's not just war correspondence. Prince William said something very problematic. I've forgotten exactly what he said, but the whole idea is, oh, we're used to seeing conflict in Asia. We're used to seeing conflict in Middle East. We're used to seeing Africans dying. But us, this can happen to us, the idea that this can happen to us, uh, even the idea that this is the most significant war in uh, since World War II makes a lot of people in the global south roll their eyes. Right, no, absolutely. And, and you look at the, the, of course, you look at the history of, of wars uh, and massacres in Europe uh, over time, absolutely horrific. Um, so... Macron's just done a wartime photo shoot despite not being in a war, but whatever France has done, despite uh, waving the flags of liberty and fraternity, what they've done in Africa and the checkered past that they've had uh, for them to now, you know, uh, act as the vanguards of humanity, it, it just seems a bit hypocritical. If we can come back to the domestic lens and the domestic messaging and the US media, um, as as critical as I am of the US, unfortunately, that is all that I follow. I watch Colbert every day, I love Colbert. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, it's your food, it's your food that has made me, in love, made me fall in love with the US and I would rather <laughs> live in the US than uh, Russia any day. But do you also feel like the media is doing a terrible job? Because at one point they claim that Russia is Hitler and he's going to conquer all of Europe and at, in the same breath they're arguing how the Russian military is antiquated and they're eating potatoes and that's all they have. I think somebody uh, took over a food truck left by the Russians and it just had pickles and potatoes. So at one point they're arguing their tanks don't work, that's why it's come to a stall and the Russian military is antiquated. But at the same time they're also arguing Putin will take over Europe. How can he do both? <laughs> yeah, well, and this is this is part of the fog of war. Uh, you know, so the old saying that truth is one of the first casualties of war. Even when you're on the ground covering it, there's going to be a lot of conflicting. Uh, there's going to be a lot of conflicting reports. And I think clearly the best way as a 
as an educated uh, consumer or observer of the war, the best way to get a sense as to what's really going on is not necessarily to follow uh, the media, though certainly you, that's, that's unavoidable, but you know, the true experts um, of Russia, of which I am not one, uh, you know, they it's, uh, know who those folks are. And I'm fortunate to have some, some colleagues uh, at the Wilson Center who follow Russia closely and are very well, well respected on it. They know what's going on. They have good contacts. And I think that that's, that's the key is one should always take media coverage during uh, media coverage of wars with, with grains of salt, particularly in the early you know, chaotic days of this war, uh, such, as what we're, such as what we're experiencing now. It's inevitable that there's going to be contradictions. And of course, social media, which didn't exist during many of the, the previous uh, wars when truth was, was still a first casualty, it makes things worse, right? Because if there's something wrong that's reported, that, that wrong item will be multiplied and people will pick up on it. And so then the lie gets magnified. I shouldn't say it's a lie. Sometimes these are innocent mistakes, but social media makes it, makes it all worse for sure. The big lie. Since you had mentioned the, the U.S. war in Iraq and the big lie, there have been books and uh, documents that have come out that U.S. intelligence was aware that the big lie was a lie and still they continued ahead with the war in Iraq. But if we come back to what you're talking about, your colleagues knowing the ground reality, what is their take? What is the ground reality in Russia? I think the grand reality is that there are different realities in different parts of uh, in different parts of, of Russia right now. Uh, the, 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 the most important reality is that people are suffering in a huge way in many cases. And in many areas, humanitarian supplies are having difficulty being delivered. Um, civilians are getting targeted, including, as, as you know, uh, several journalists have been killed uh, over the last few days um, in, in Ukraine. Um, and that I think another thing that I hear is that we should not assume that just because things appear to be, the, the Russians appear to be struggling to achieve their goals of taking cities and all, that does not appear that the war effort's going to fail. It's too early to be making that type of um, uh, prognostication. And as I think I had said before, um, according to these people that really know what's going on, there is a, a good chance that Russia could resort to more desperate uh, measures in some areas, uh, using more, even more aggressive tactics to try to take over areas or make progress in areas where they haven't been able to make progress. Um, and beyond that, people are sort of cautious about not wanting to forecast too far uh, into the future um, because of simply not knowing what's going to happen. I think that it's important even for experts to acknowledge sometimes that they don't know what's next. There's nothing wrong with humility <laughs> and saying, well, I don't know what's coming next. Nothing uh, wrong with that. Putin did allude to threatening nuclear missiles. Is there any truth or veracity to that of Putin metaphorically and literally using the nuclear option? Because that just might be the end of the world as we know it. I, yeah, I, again, I, the only person that knows the answer to that question is Putin himself. Uh, I don't know. I, I like to assume that it was a big, uh, that it was a big bluff, but, um, you know, he did something that hasn't been done in many years when he put his, uh, he put his strategic nuclear forces at a higher level of, of readiness. Very, very troubling, but I, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine it happening, um, but who knows? And I think that when we talk about the possibility of him feeling more desperate and being willing to resort to more extreme things, I, I do not believe that that refers to the possibility of, uh, of, of 
contemplating nuclear weapons use. I'm talking about more aggressive forms of conventional military uh, power, uh, more indiscriminate bombing and so forth, which is horrific enough for sure. But um, my goodness, I, I, I certainly hope that, uh, that he wouldn't contemplate that. And I would hope that the, the US and others would do whatever is possible to lead some type of diplomatic full court press to ensure that we don't get to a position where we have to worry about that. There's an argument to be made that if you know what Putin is thinking, know what he's accusing others of. And I believe he's accused Ukrainians of using chemical weapons. That's why there's also a lot of fear that if he's projecting that, if he's accusing the other side of using chemical weapons, they might be getting ready to use them. And that short of the nuclear option, that will also be quite catastrophic, both for the Ukrainian right. people and global politics. Exactly. And I know that for the US government, that's the biggest immediate concern, not not nuclear weapons, but yeah, but chemical weapons. And indeed, you're right, this has been the pattern of Putin to create these false pretexts, these false flags, to justify doing the very thing that he claims the other side has been doing instead. And this gets to the whole absurdity of his argument uh, for this invasion, sort of claiming that uh, you know, you have Ukrainians trying to stir up trouble and trying to provoke, uh, you know, these Russia, these pro-Russia forces. Why would Ukrainians do that when they have 200,000 Russian troops to mobilize along the border? Why are you hitting no yourself, sense. Ukraine? Why are you hitting yourself? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he's even accused a Jewish man of being a neo-Nazi. It's, it's, it's quite shocking. Uh, I know you have limited time, we've taken an hour of your time, but we may talk about Pakistan. I think Imran Khan's gone on a tirade and a lot of the discussion on local media is obviously seen with the lens of partisanship. If there's a pro-PMLN anchor, he's seen as touting the party line, whereas a pro-PTI anchor would uh, obviously tout their own party line. As far as the US is concerned, are these brash statements seen by, by the Prime Minister of Pakistan seen as concerning or they're also seen as you put it take no heed to what biden said on the campaign trail and despite being the prime minister it seems like imran khan is now on a campaign trail so when imran khan goes after nato or goes after the us are they taken seriously in the us these statements yeah i mean i think that uh, there's a recognition uh, in the us and in washington that this is really has long been imran khan's calling card uh, you know anti-west populist rhetoric has been one of his core uh, messages, uh, along with anti-corruption from the time he first entered politics in the 1990s. So I think that those in the administration that are sort of focusing on Pakistan now, and quite frankly, there's not many, there's not many people in Washington focused on Pakistan now, other than those that cover Pakistan for a living. Um, I think that they just see this as, as, more, as more par for the course, um, for sure. Um, I think that, uh, <laughs> There's just much more attention elsewhere, uh, to be quite frank. Um, so it's it's seen, and it certainly it would be viewed, it is viewed as, as particularly sharp and strident, um, the way in which he took aim at the uh, the EU ambassadors in Islamabad that had issued that statement calling on Pakistan to, to condemn the invasion. You know, that was, you know, bring this idea that whether the EU thinks that, that Imran Khan is a slave of the EU. Yeah, that's pretty sharp rhetoric, it may not go over well, but again, I think that given his 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 record as a, as a politician, and you know, given that there's so much of a precedent for this, I think that it really will be met with uh, with shrugs and 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 not much else uh, here in Washington, where again the the focus is on the focus is on other things. And should say it's not only Imran Khan. I mean, as you would know, 
over the years, many Pakistani leaders from many different parties have resorted to anti-West rhetoric, uh, either because they genuinely believe in what they say or simply because they know that that would play well um, within a broad subset of the population that tends to be very critical of the West, particularly in terms of its policies. You, know, you go back to Zulfi Karali Bhutto, of course, who I think is perhaps the most logical analog for the types of things that Imran Khan has been saying these days. But not just that, all of the parties, um, leaders from various parties, I mean, the PMLN, they had come out with some pretty nasty uh, anti-West uh, rhetoric at some point. So everyone everyone does it, particularly Imran Khan, though. Why should I sit here? I'm going back to my country to hell with the Security Council. <laughs> it's quite a moment uh, for Pakistan. I think we, we take quite pride in that moment of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. Um, so it might be water off, uh, water under the bridge, uh, water off a duck's back. I got confused in between the two metaphors. But there is an argument that's made on television in Pakistan that Imran Khan's comments, and particularly about the Taliban breaking the shackles of slavery, that ran on the front page, I believe, on the Washington Post, that ran, and that was quite concerning for US foreign policy experts. But his particular targeted remarks about Blinken and Biden being ignorant, there is an argument made that that's why Biden has not called Imran Khan and has sort of shunned Pakistan repeatedly, even when it came to inviting uh, Pakistan on the climate conference, which they really should have with the fourth or the fifth most affected country by climate change. So. Is it true that those statements were taken seriously or the sidelining of Pakistan by the US, uh, at least in terms of personal relationships between Biden and Imran Khan, there's more to it than just the statements of Imran Khan? Yeah, I think there is more to it uh, than, this, than just the statements. Uh, so cer well, certainly they don't help his cause in, in Washington with this administration. Uh, and of course that you know Imran Khan had hit it off, so to speak, with the Trump administration to an extent, but that's only because Trump himself recognized that he needed Pakistan's help to get talks going with the Taliban. And, and Pakistan's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm cutting you, but uh, Pakistan's predictions were of a Trump victory. So we did put all our eggs in terms of our foreign policy in the Trump basket, because locally the prediction was that Trump would win. Right, exactly, right. So anyway, um, you know, Imran Khan, of course, was happy to deliver on that uh, request to bring the Taliban to the table, and that helped him get the invitation to the White House. And he had what, from a public diplomacy, public relations uh, angle, was a very successful trip to Washington. He met with all kinds of key people, not just Trump, but key congressional leaders and other members of the Trump cabinet. So that was great. But I think with the Biden administration, this is an administration that is populated by many old foreign policy hands who had served in the Biden and the Obama administration, including Biden, of course, and who were there at one of the most difficult periods for US-Pakistan relations, right? 2011, 2012, when all of those crises happened, Raymond Davis, Salala, bin Laden raid, and so on. So I think that those memories die hard. And I think that in that regard, President Biden is really in no hurry to try to build up a, a good relationship with uh, with Imran Khan, who happens to be someone that's been very critical of US policies at that very time when the relationship was so bad with the drones and, and, and other things as well. But um, so I don't think that the only reason why there hasn't been a phone call between Biden and, and Khan is because of some negative things that Khan has said about the US and about US uh, political figures. 
I think it goes deeper than that. Uh, first of all, I think that the US did invite Pakistan to its White House Democracy Summit. And I think that was meant to be an olive branch because uh, you know, indeed, as you noted, the US didn't invite Pakistan to the climate conference, which was not received well in Pakistan for good reason. Anyway, the US invited Pakistan to the democracy summit. Pakistan at the last minute backed out for reasons that have never been clear. I think that it thought that the whole thing was getting too political and anti-China, which is, would be accurate. Um, but I think that that was a blow, that that is something that could have provided an opening had Pakistan participated in that conference. That could have provided an opening for the relationship and may have led to a greater likelihood of a call. But beyond that, another factor is that President Biden is not one who is going to pick up the phone and have a call with a uh, head of government in another country just, just to do it, just to say hi, so to speak. And that's what separates him from Trump. President Biden, you know, he he sees the relationship and the Biden administration sees the relationship with Pakistan as very transactional. So I think that he would only be ready to have a call if there's something, if there's an agreement to finalize or if there's something, if there's an achievement to celebrate. And there hasn't been anything like that, quite frankly. Um, you know, the U.S. has explored possible new agreements with Pakistan vis-a-vis counterterrorism in Afghanistan. Uh, I think that military basing is out, of the, as, as out so that's not going to happen. But, you know, other opportunities like a new intelligence sharing agreement, um, to allow Pakistan and US to share intelligence about terror groups in Afghanistan. Nothing's happened there. So I think that that gives Biden little reason to want to talk to, uh, to Prime Minister Khan. But bottom line, you know, final point on this, certainly the, Imran Khan doesn't help the cause of, of wanting a call with President Biden, if he still wants a call at this point, by saying the types of things that he said. The Taliban, are, the Taliban comment about you know, the, the shackles of slavery being broken, that got such a big response only because it was such a traumatic, the, the Taliban takeover was such a traumatic event for the United States. And so obviously there's gonna be a lot of attention paid to how key regional players react. Uh, so that's understandable. But I, I think the US has in many ways moved on from Pakistan. Um, it's so focused on other things that it's just, I, I, don't, I don't imagine that there's going to be a call anytime soon. I don't think that it would hurt. There's nothing wrong in doing it. But for the reasons I mentioned, I think it's unlikely we're going to see that call. I mean, there's widespread acceptance now in the US academia as well that the drone program was horrendous and was inhumane. So I do, despite being this critical of Imran Khan and being a vocal, known as a vocal critic of Imran Khan, I fully support his anti-drone movement. And I do agree that uh, it's, it's the drone program had a lot of, lot of collateral damage, even if the claims were made that it was safer than conventional bombing. Uh, particularly uh, uh, the timing, and I do feel Putin played us like a fiddle. They knew they were going to invade Ukraine on that day, and they wanted it to show, like, wanted the world to see business as usual with Putin meeting world leaders. And I don't think we gained anything from that. But would you also put Imran Khan being in Moscow when Russia invaded Ukraine, as just bad optics and nothing more than that, or that in particular is seen uh, a lot more critically by world leaders around the world. Yeah, so I know that this visit he made to Russia is a very sensitive issue for government supporters and, and Safians get so angry when I, when I make this comment. But yeah, I agree with you. It was terrible optics for him to be there. It would have been different if he had gone there you know, a few weeks later 
when he could have at that point, you know, used the excuse to try to call for de-escalation, but he was literally there as the invasion was unfolding. And I just think that that is just not good. And, and the good thing is that there were very, there were very few public aspects to the visit. Um, well, actually there were quite a few, but there weren't as many as there could have been. But for me, the, the really bad, the worst optic was when he, when Imran Khan was standing there shaking hands with President Putin. And what then when an they exciting took a... time to be here. What an <laughs> exciting <laughs> the, the, the fact that, you know, there was a big story made about the, the, the long table, so to speak. You know, Putin, this, this is where he really played Imran Khan. He had Imran Khan sat, sit down right next to him. There was no big table to separate them. And so, you know, one could argue, oh, that's because maybe Imran Khan agreed to take a Russian PCR test. And so Putin was not as paranoid as he ordinarily would be when was willing to have Khan close to him. But I think that was the case of, of Putin trying to show that he sees Imran Khan as a friend and that Putin still has friends and he'll continue to have friends despite what he's doing in Ukraine. So that was very problematic. Um, so yeah, the optics were bad, but I, I really think Pakistan had no choice. I think that to back out so suddenly at a moment when, uh, at a time when the relationship with Russia is very important for Pakistan, even if there's not all that much to it, there's not many, there's not much meat on the bones of that relationship, but it has been making progress. And, you know, as I understand it, the plan was to discuss and perhaps even finalize some, some deals related to energy uh, and so on. So I think that he had to make the trip, which is why it was just really bad luck, but I'm completely with you. I really think that um, that Putin may have purposely planned it this way. You know, we had all heard that if there was going to be an invasion, it was going to happen soon after the Beijing Olympics ended. Imran Khan went to, to Moscow within a few days after the Beijing Olympics ended. So I think I, I was not surprised. Um, many were surprised. I was not surprised that he invaded and I was not surprised that it had happened to coincide with Imran Khan's visit. It's unfortunate, but again, it comes down to bad luck for the Imran Khan government. I do think Pakistan was pushed into a corner and we didn't have any good options because the visit was scheduled, uh, I think it was scheduled uh, a few weeks prior to even the fog of war or the idea that you, they might actually invade Ukraine. And maybe some calculations were that's a bluff and they won't actually invade. So once we accepted the visit, not going would have also looked terrible. And the statement right. that came out was quite measured. But again, Imran Khan's rhetoric is what gets him into trouble. I don't think any deal was signed or there has been no evidence that a deal was signed of wheat coming in from Russia. But just to drum up political support, he said that. And then there were certain EU leaders that really rebuked that idea that war is going on and you're uh, importing wheat from Russia, even though it's not happening. Mm -hmm. Right. No, absolutely. Um, I would say that I think that the trip, it, it would have been a diplomatic disaster to, to back out. But I also think that it was a it was politically advantageous for Imran Khan to, to be there, because I think that allows him to to sort of send a, a message of defiance to the West. And that can rally his 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 base, his supporters. And, you know, that's this is what he's been trying to do, defy the West with his rhetoric. But in this case, with his visit to Russia, with his actions as well, quite frankly, I think he, that sort of goes too far. That's not the best way to defy the West. Um, but um, I think he did derive a fair amount of political mileage from his visit. I mean, naturally, his 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 detractors and his critics went crazy and were furious with what he did. But I think what's more important to him is that he was able to to rally his his base, uh, which I think, as I understand it, on many levels, has become has grown so concerned because of the economic stress 
in, in Pakistan. So it was important for him to, for symbolic reasons, to show that he's not going to just cancel this visit just because the West wants him to. I think that's an important message for him to, to convey to his, to his supporters. Imran Khan is definitely putting Imran Khan before Pakistan, whether it means hurting the IMF program and this anti-American populism. And when I put it up that Michael's going to talk about that, somebody tweeted saying, then should we have pro-American populism? Those are not the two binaries that we're drawing. The idea is that it's only said because it sells. Um, Imran Khan went to the IMF. Imran Khan now, based on IMF's recommendation, has ceded control of the state bank uh, from Pakistan to essentially the IMF. It's a much bigger discussion, but that's my opinion. Uh, so you're actually handing over state institutions to an, to uh, the IMF and it might be called International Monetary Fund, but it's closely controlled. If, okay, maybe controlled is too strong a word, but I'm going to stick to that by the, by the, by the US. So at one point you're passing ordinances, handing over the state bank to the US and then going to your rallies and you know drumming up anti-Americanism, populism. That's the problem. And I completely agree with you, him meeting Putin um, sets up the grounds that in case he's ousted, he can make a claim that it was a conspiracy by the CIA in America because he's anti-American and that's why he was ousted. I know there is no truth to that, but since it's a popular theory in Pakistan and the US is known to oust leaders around the world, most definitely, uh, what would you say to Pakistanis who believe that the US is now interested in ousting Imran Khan? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And absolutely, I acknowledge why that conspiracy theory is so powerful. It's because you know, it is rooted in, in, in some realities of the past, right? I mean, we look at what's happened. Uh, you know, if you go back to the uh, really like recent history, looking at the role the CIA has played in Pakistan. I mean, the whole, the fact that you had so many CIA operatives in Pakistan not too long ago, uh, the fact, you know, the whole Raymond Davis affair. Uh, and I think that the, the, the um, the Afridi case, I mean, the, the idea of having a Pakistani doctor work with the CIA oh, to, yeah, to track down. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, I understand that the, the means justify the ends, or the end justifies the means sometimes. And I'm, I'm really happy that bin Laden was apprehended. Everyone should be happy about that. But that, that incident, I think, did so much to not just shatter, well not shatter, it, it did so much to not only undermine US-Pakistan cooperation, but also to eliminate the possibility that there could be any hope of Pakistanis ever taking a more sanguine view of the CIA, just because of that one incident. So I fully understand where uh, Pakistanis are coming from when they, may, when they sort of say, oh yeah, sure, well, given what's happened in the past, why shouldn't we expect that the CIA is once again at work trying to, uh, to oust Imran Khan? But what's different is, is that the, quite frankly, I mean, I don't mean to be blunt, but I think that in Pakistan, there's a tendency to exaggerate the importance that Pakistan and particularly Pakistani domestic politics has in Washington. Um, you know, the US has largely moved on and especially since the withdrawal, there's not really much attention paid to domestic politics in Pakistan. In great part because the relationship with Pakistan is not in, in a pretty deep place right now. And you know, at the end of the day, I think that uh, even though this is not good for democracy in Pakistan, 
At the end of the day, when the U.S. really feels it needs to work closely with Pakistan and get things done and pursue deals, it knows who to go to. It, it confers with the army, and the army's not going anywhere. So engineering some type of regime change to bring in a new civilian administration, it wouldn't matter. Um, for, in other words, the U.S. would have no incentive to, to, to see one particular civilian administration over the other, even though it may privately have its preferences. But naturally, it would be willing to work with whichever administration is in power. Um, so, yeah, it's all it's that, that's that's my view that, yes, I can acknowledge why this this idea would be out there, given the precedent of the past. But the U.S. simply doesn't pay much mind to Pakistan right now. It's not very focused on it. And also, you know, the one data point that many Pakistanis have put out there is that you had, quote unquote, you know, U.S. ambassadors meeting with opposition members. Uh, and that must suggest some 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 type of, of plan. Well, first of all, there hasn't been a U.S. ambassador in Pakistan for several years. So you did have some senior U.S. diplomats meeting with Mariam uh, uh, Sharif uh, several years ago, or last year, I believe. But this happens, this is what diplomats do. They don't only meet with the governments in the countries that they're based in, they meet, they meet with a lot of key political figures. And you know, the Pakistani diplomats in Washington frequently meet with uh, senior members of the Republican party, the opposition, they meet with the opposition party. This is how diplomacy works. So that's why I would push back against that purported data point that, that many Pakistanis have, have put out there. I would just, my closing word on this is that I acknowledge, I acknowledge where you're coming from given, the, given what's happened in the past, but it's a whole new ball game now. And what you suggest is proof that something is brewing is not proof at all because it's totally normal for these things to happen. And it does not signify anything covert or behind the scenes or anything like that. But, you know, I, I, of course, if it's very clever politically for Imran Khan to do this, because, you know, if he survives a no confidence vote, he can say, well, look, I defied the West. And if he loses, he could he could essentially come up with this new narrative to say, well, look, you know, the West, you know, the, the, the Western backed opposition pushed me out. We're going to we're going to put together a campaign and come back to uh, put these these Western stooges to rest once and for all. So it's political genius. Uh, but it's dangerous for the people and not to say Islamophobia does not happen in the West, it absolutely does but to make that a central tenant and to make that binary of everything in the West is terrible and wants to kill you I think only does does a lot to reawaken your own religious identity and that often turns to violence so it is a very very dangerous rhetoric that Khan is engaging in uh, but he's doing it for his own politics as opposed to um, anything to do with the betterment of Pakistan, but it also shows uh, what you're talking about, U.S.'s hypocrisy, that democracy is a central tenant of their foreign policy and is a central moral high ground that they take even while invading other countries. But they have repeatedly, uh, gladly worked with the military in Pakistan, even undercutting uh, democratic regimes or the power of the democratic regimes by dealing directly with the military. Um, and Musharraf was arguably one of their closest allies. So this whole idea that the U.S. is a supporter of democracy does not play out, especially when their dealings, when we look at their dealings with Pakistan. Yeah, absolutely. And certainly the U.S., uh, it certainly supports the idea of civilian democracy. And, you know, you look at some of the assistance programs over the years, particularly at USAID, it provided support to, to boost uh, 
capacity within the parliament. And, and there have been plenty of efforts in that role, also in terms of supporting Pakistani civil society. But yeah, when push comes to shove, you know who, who the US officials will go to if they feel they need to get something done. Uh, I know we're out of time. If you have 10 minutes, can I do like really quick answers for the questions people asked? Yeah, sure. Okay. Ask him, ask him about who will fill the power vacuum left in Afghanistan. The power vacuum left in Afghanistan? Oh, well, <laughs> well, actually, I mean, there's no power vacuum and the, the Taliban is in full control. They swept in, they, uh, they eliminated any form of, of resistance and uh, what's left of the opposition to the Taliban has largely been uh, displaced to, uh, to Tajikistan. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly maybe the, the question is getting to this idea of, of the region. Could we see a new great game in, in Afghanistan with the US gone? Perhaps, but I, I don't buy into this narrative that eventually we're going to see China and, uh, and Iran and other countries sort of step in to fill the vacuum left by the US just because everyone's being very cautious. I think that everyone, including Pakistan, wants to get a better sense as to if the Taliban will be able to survive, what if, or if anything, it'll be able to do about the various forms of terrorist threats in Afghanistan. So I think that these regional countries will hold back before actually agreeing to step in and provide a lot of money and build out infrastructure uh, and so on. So I think everyone's taking a wait and watch uh, approach uh, from the near to midterm. Can you please ask him with the lack of presence in South Asia, except India, how does the USA see the growing influence of Russia and China with countries like Pakistan? I'm not sure how much Russia has influence over Pakistan, but definitely China. Yeah, no, this is, this is, I think, one of the big geopolitical stories of our times, that China has been expanding its presence uh, far beyond its immediate neighborhood into South Asia. And I think that one of the big storylines in the coming years will be the, the competition between China and India. Uh, how does that play out? Because we've seen in many of the smaller states of South Asia, uh, many of these states have his <coughs> historically had close ties to India, but China has moved in using the vehicle of the Belt and Road Initiative to develop more of a presence, develop more influence. But India has sought to, to push back uh, on, by sort of stepping in and offering up its own assistance. You know, this week, the Sri Lankan finance minister went to India to uh, finalize this new billion dollar line of credit agreement. Uh, Sri Lanka had been getting a lot of financial support from China in recent years. So how that plays out will be very interesting. The Russia factor is, is, is fascinating in this regard. You know, I think that many outside of South Asia don't realize that Russia actually is fairly popular, I think, on a sort of a, in terms of, um, Russia doesn't have any enemies in South Asia, and it has varying forms of relations, very good with India to pretty cordial trade relations with Sri Lanka and Bangladesh. Um, but there's this, the soft power effect as well. I mean, many, many South Asian students have studied in Russian universities, uh, many South Asian now, there's a pretty significant South Asian tourism industry in Russia as well. Uh, you know, the one time I went to Russia a few years ago, I was struck by how many Indian tourists uh, were there. So, so there's that. So I think that if Russia is going to be looking for, for, new for new markets and opportunities to get around its heavily sanctioned self, I could see it trying to piggyback on China's um, uh, activities in South Asia to try to develop more of a relationship, particularly at commercial levels with some of these South Asian states, right? I mean, it's, it's, only, it's only natural. 
I think this is the tweet that made me tell you that death, taxes, and trolls are inevitable. The tweet was, he projects Hindutva goons as well-wishers of in South Asia, CAA 373, 35A and Kisad movement, his analysis and argument supports one side, that is the BJP view. Even if he posts, the English is atrocious in this tweet, not that I should be language shaming anybody. Even if he posts mostly about India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, but never share negative news when it comes to India. Right. How yeah, much that's... does Raw pay you, Michael? How much does Raw pay you? <laughs> yeah, I always like that type of uh, trolling comment just because I hear the exact opposite from Indian trolls who it tell me that why about I... you being pro-Pakistani military as well, along with this. Right. Thing. Yeah. Some one thing I've always thought it was it'd be great to convene a Twitter space session where I can bring in all of the Pakistani trolls and the Indian trolls who target me and just let them battle things out. And I'll just sit there and, and listen and laugh. Uh, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I mean, as an analyst, I feel that um, I try to say things as they are. Uh, I'm not going to single out one country over the other. And naturally, since I'll you know, be critical of, of both countries from time to time, naturally for those that are really nationalistic, and a lot of these trolls are very nationalistic, they just can't stand when an outsider has something negative to say about their country. And um, the perception of not being negative enough about the enemy, um, nothing I could do about that. Uh, this is actually quite a good question. I would like you to ask him, China has deepened its economic engagement with Pakistan through elite-centered negotiations over routes and projects, CPEC. What, what does the USA have to offer to Pakistan other than aid? It's less anti-American and more national interest. Interesting point. Yeah, so it's a, it is an interesting point. Um, you know, it's interesting that... Um, Many in Pakistan have taken uh, U.S. Uh, opposition to CPEC as a uh, really a criticism of Pakistan, but in fact, it's not. It's just part of the U.S.-China rivalry. And when Alice Wells uh, very famously made her speech at the Wilson Center uh, several years ago, in which she became the first senior U.S. official to publicly criticize CPEC, people forget about the second part of the speech, where she laid out in great detail how the US could essentially be a better investor in Pakistan than, than China could. Um, but certainly at the end of the day, I think that what the US has to offer is not very much. Uh, quite frankly, it has a vision about how it could provide more equitable, uh, fair investments and things like that. But at the end of the day, the US can't really hold a candle to what China has been able to do. And the fact that indeed China doesn't demand it doesn't provide aid with as many conditions as the US uh, as the US does. It's very hard for the US to get around that. And now, you know, the US has come out with this new policy, this it's not a new policy, relatively new policy, this Indo-Pacific policy, which is in part meant to um, uh, provide mechanisms and financial support for the development of infrastructure projects throughout Asia. But this doesn't apply to Pakistan because it's meant to counter China and push back against China. So the US would not be able to justify uh, committing all of these new resources to infrastructure development in Pakistan as part of the Indo-Pacific program because it would be seen as anti-China, which is not what Pakistan uh, wants. Um, and so I, I just think that to the extent that the US would wanna ramp up its investment presence in South Asia, I think we'd be talking a lot more in the context of of some of the smaller South Asian states where there's this battle for, for a competition between India and China, the US would like to shape that competition so that it benefits India 
And so it would want to try to develop closer relations with those countries to wean them away from China. Obviously, that's not a dynamic that applies in Pakistan, which of course has a, a deep alliance with Beijing. Maybe a real politic answer to this would be advanced military technology, whether truly, well, yes, the US military technology is the most advanced in the world, but the Pakistan military is also used to it over the years. So the Pakistan military will always have an affinity towards the US and will want to be in the US camp, because apart from economic aid, there is also specifically military aid, and the Pakistani military definitely prefers that from the US over any other country. I know we're already hitting 90 minutes, so this is going to be the last question. Is anti-American rhetoric good for us? We've gone through that detail. We've had the detailed discussion. Pakistan has always received foreign aid during national disasters, floods, earthquakes. Earthquakes. Is this narrative good or bad for Pakistan-U.S. friendship? I think the specific question is, doesn't this work for us? Ziaul Haq was, um, I think it is rumored that Ziaul Haq was negotiating with the U.S. on foreign aid while orchestrating an attack on the American embassy and using that as a way to get more aid from the America. So doesn't this work for us? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I really, uh, it's hard, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to answer that. And I don't really, I, you know, I, I'm not really sure I'd buy into that. Uh, I'm not sure I'd buy into that idea, quite frankly. Um, you know, I think that, uh, yes, you uh, asked them, well, Trying to think of a recent or a recent case study that I could tap into, and I can't really think of one. But no, I think that the U.S. has provided humanitarian assistance. I think during the earthquake, that terrible earthquake some years ago, um, you know, U.S. assistance was forthcoming. But I'm not sure. I think that that's one case where you don't have to assume that there were conditions uh, attached to it. Uh, I think that that's and and actually for that matter, it's a myth to say that um, that you have these heavy conditions on US civilian and development assistance uh, to Pakistan. There's certainly expectations about things that are done, but it's the security assistance where there's been more conditionality attached to it. This applies to the Kerry Luger Berman deal. When, when that deal was announced, there was this huge hullabaloo, as you'll recall, predicated on this idea that it was the civilian assistance that came at a huge cost and so forth, the need to, uh, to assert civilian supremacy over the military and all of that. But it, it was it was separate. The development assistance attached to this, the Kerry Luger Berman bill um, did not come with with heavy conditions. So at any rate, it's a good question that you pose, but um, I don't really I don't really have a good answer. I think that the U.S. likes to see its its sort of episodic humanitarian assistance as serving an immediate cause of bringing humanitarian relief to to a country where, of course, you know we have seen far right uh, militant uh, groups oftentimes step into the fray and provide assistance when the states, particularly the civilian leadership, is not in a position to provide that assistance. I mean, if the U.S. wants to support podcasts in Pakistan, patreon.com slash the Pakistan experience. <laughs> <laughs> That's something else that I'll pass on to the relevant authorities here. That and your, your Russian vodka request. <laughs> <laughs> I'd prefer the vodka over the Patreon trip, but thank you so much, Michael. <laughs> I think it's an interesting discussion, and uh, I think global politics, especially right now, are ever changing, and we can't truly predict. But uh, this probably helped understand it better. Thank you so much, Michael, for coming on. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to. You. And thank you for listening. Take care. Bye bye.